6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his conclusion on the book of James. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of bronze, he lived. Strange, strange story when you think about it. Because if God's going to save the people, great. Why did God resort to this rather weird code? It's a code. What's a code? It's a set of symbols. This was a symbol. He made a brass serpent, put it on a pole. If you looked at the pole, you were, you, you know, you were healed. If you didn't look at the pole, sorry, sayonara. God, you know, in other words, he asked you to do something. It was simple. So that's the story. And it may, you say, what's going on here? Fortunately, the most competent commentator in the universe has given you the explanation. Turn to John chapter 3. The Bible is always best interpreted by itself. In John chapter 3, the number one teacher in Israel, a guy by the name of Nicodemus, comes to Jesus by night. And in the conversation that ensues, we learn that he is the teacher. Not a teacher, the teacher in Israel. And this is is the famous passage where Jesus says, you must be born again. In fact, uh, this is important enough. Let's just start at verse 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the womb a second, in his mother's womb a second time? Obviously he knows better. That's his way of getting across the question. What do you mean? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said he must be born again. Where the wind bloweth, where it willeth. Thou hearest the sound of it, but cannot can tell from where it cometh and where it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? And Jesus said unto him, Art thou the teacher of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that which we do know and testify to that which we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man who is in heaven. In other words, the guy is standing in front of him. Then you get to this enigmatic verse 14. Jesus continues, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. Now verse 16 I think you're probably familiar with, right? (laughs) For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And on he goes. Now we all remember John 3.16, but verse 14 leads up to that. 
And the model that Jesus presents to Nicodemus, a well-trained Jew, is draws upon that experience from Numbers 21. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. He's talking literally here now. Literally. You say, well, gee, it's a symbol. Yes, but is he speaking literally? When everywhere in the scripture that a prophet of God re- interprets the scriptures, always literally. Always literally. And Jesus is raised up literally on a pole. And whoever looked at him, trusted him, would, be, would not perish. Now, turn it around the other way. God, back in Numbers 21, in contriving this response to Moses' prayer, develops that imagery. Okay, Moses, make a brass serpent, put it on a pole, and whoever looks at it, trusts it, will be healed. God is setting it, what I call a macro code. He's, it's an anticipatory code. Yeah, now... So you all know the story. Now, you may not realize this. The serpent on the pole became an ancient symbol of healing in the days of the Torah, days of Moses. Later, that legend or that story, I think that legend, that story, takes a Greek form where it's called Escalapius, the god of healing. The Greeks picked up this from the earlier tradition of the Hebrews. And the idea of a pole with a serpent on it became a symbol of what? Healing. In Alexandria, in the Greek legend, that's why I used the term legend before, in the Greek legend of Aesculapius, that's, what, that's, that's the, the symbol. Now, what's kind of interesting, most of you probably have seen on license plates the little medical symbol, which is a pole with two serpents. See, somebody who is designing the symbol for the Army Medical Corps, the one ser- now you'll see nurses, and sometimes they'll see a pole with a single serpent. That's correct. But you often see the double serpent, that's unfortunate, because whoever designed that way, way, way back didn't do their homework. Because the single serpent on the pole is Aesculapius, a symbol of the god of healing in the Greek. The two serpents on the pole is a symbol of the god of Hermes, which is the god of commerce. <laughs> <laughs> and every time I see a doctor's license plate with the two serpents, I mean... <laughs> So anyway, the reason I get into this is because I want you to turn with me to 2 Kings 18. Now we're moving here from the Torah, the days of Moses, to 2 Kings 18. We're in the reign of Hezekiah, king of Israel. Or I should say king of Judah. Anyway, king of Judah, excuse me. And I want to get down to 2 Kings 18. And under Hezekiah, we're going to see, he reigns over Judah, and he's going to have a major, major revival. And verse 4 says something kind of interesting. It says, he removed the high places and broke the images. Now, by the way, you should understand that God instructed them, they never were to put their sacred places at the top of hills. Never at the top of hills. Even the temple was not at the top of Moriah. It was at the saddle point. Because the tops of mountains were associated with idol worship. That's where all the pagan nations built their idols. It was on the top of a mountain. He wanted their practices to be different. Throughout the Old Testament, you hear speak of the groves. The groves were not groves of trees. They were trees that were trimmed like phallic symbols. This had to do with the sex orgies and, and the form of worship of the pagan idols. 
So when it says he removed the high places, what that means is he destroyed all the pagan artifacts that were on the tops of these hills. And he broke the images, that is the idols. And he cut down the idols and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it. And he called it Nehushtan, a thing of brass. This imagery, one other thing I forgot to point out, maybe I should just insert here. Jesus said to Nicodemus, as Moses raised the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be raised up. There's a subtlety there that is very deliberate on the part of God. Because the serpent on the cross, the brass serpent, was a symbol of what? Sin. And Paul tells us in this Corinthian letters that Jesus was made sin. You think, gee, isn't that a strange symbol of Jesus Christ? A brass serpent on a pole. No, it isn't a strange symbol if you really understand who he was and what he was doing. That he, we have no ability to grasp what it means when it says he was made sin for us. But that, again, see, you know, here's a symbol. I want you to imagine the state of Israel, you know, a thousand years after Moses, under Hezekiah. This brass serpent was still around. It wasn't a counterfeit. It was the brass serpent, apparently, that somehow had been kept from those days of the wilderness wandering. And what had people done with it? They worshipped it. Now, this was not a counterfeit. It was the brass serpent. It had tremendous representational value. It was an authentic relic. But they were burning incense to it, venerating it. So what did Hezekiah do? He destroyed it. He destroyed it. And there's a lesson here. And by the way, verse 5, it follows this, says, He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him, all among the, all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. Hezekiah was at a, a, a peak. He, he, he did well. But the point, the lesson we learn, is, imagine, imagine that we came back from Ararat with a piece of wood from Noah's Ark. Wow, isn't that neat? Yeah, maybe. What's likely to happen? Well, we put it on display. And thousands of people come to want to say, ooh, there, there's an actual timber from the... You, get, you see what's going to happen? You see how foolish we are? How we focus on the creation, not the creator. And that's what Hezekiah was faced with here. And I, I bring this up because let's assume for the moment that the shroud is real. Let's assume that it is real. What does Paul tell you in Colossians 3, 2? Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. How irresistible it would be if we can prove scientifically that it really was. And by the way, I'm sparing you the long version. There is a lot of evidence that does support the idea that that really might be the shroud that wrapped our Lord 2,000 years ago. Let's, for the moment, stipulate that. Let's assume it is. Boy, does that make it dangerous. Is your faith enhanced because of that shroud? If it is, you've got some praying to do. Really? Is your faith on a relic? However venerated, however scientifically valid? Hey, big mistake. Well, let's, let me turn now to April 21st of 1988, 10 years later. 
after the previous scientists. Under the gaze of Anastasio Cardinal Balestrio of Turin, Italian microanalyst Giovanni Righi cut a half-inch by three-inch strip from the shroud in a place that was considered not objectionable. And he divided this three-inch strip into postage stamp-sized samples and distributed them to representatives of the laboratories in Zurich, Oxford, and the University of Arizona in Tucson for radiocarbon dating. Now, carbon dating, so you understand what happens, is it measures the level of carbon-14, which is an isotope. It's not the normal kind of carbon. Because of cosmic ray-induced neutrons, it interacts with the nitrogen atoms and gives you a carbon-14, an odd isotope in the atmosphere. Plants and animals ingest that, and while they're alive, a balance takes place. The amount that's destroyed gets replaced by the amount that's there. There's, a, there's an equilibrium that takes place. But... Uh, as long as they're alive, when the plants or animals die, that equilibrium is stopped. The carbon-14 has a half-life. It decays. It's radioactive. And it has a half-life of about 5,700 years. But the point is it's a measurable decay. And so in the case, in the case of the, the, the linen, which is made from flax, they can tell, presumably, that when that flax plant was picked. Now, carbon-14 dating within the range we're talking about here isn't a bad technique. You're talking a few thousand years, it's pretty good. You start extending that to many, many, many thousands or tens of thousands, the errors in your measurements start to accumulate. It's no reliable laboratory will date anything beyond certain thresholds more than 5,000 years. So these attempts to deal with fossils in millions of years is baloney, and I won't get into that here. Carbon-14 is a technique that's been much talked about among scientific Discussions, but usually in the context of much longer ages. Within more recent thing, it's it's considered a pretty understood technology. Now, uh, by anyway, so by measuring the residual carbon fourteen in the linen and comparing it with the amount of modern plants that uh, they can yield an estimate of how long the flax plants making up the linen have been dead. That's what they do. They did, each of the three labs did three tests, nine tests total, and they came to the conclusion that that. Shroud was dated somewhere between 1260 and 1390 A.D. It's about 700 years old, not 2,000 years. Okay? It is that dating of the shroud that caused me to include this background in our study of James. Say, what? Okay. Before I go on, because I want to get off the shroud, and you'll see where I'm headed in a minute, I want to give you, I haven't told you the final part of the story. Dr. Leon, uh, Leoncio Gar, uh, Garza Valdez of San Antonio, Texas. He's a pediatrician, but he has substantial interest in microbiology and archaeology. He has pointed out a potential source of error. The possibility of a bioplastic lacquer-like coating produced by bacteria. It turns out, in the past, I won't tell you that whole story, he was responsible for correcting an earlier error involving a Mayan jade artifact that was misdated because of such a coating. So he has background in this. And when he heard about this with the Shroud of Turin, he wondered, is it possible that same thing could have happened? Apparently bacteria can create a certain lacquer-like, very microscopic, but it does screw up the carbon-14 dating studies. And that's what happened with the Mayan artifact, and they corrected that, and he was famous for that. He wondered, is it possible it's true here? So in May of 1993, obtaining a couple of threads and a bloodstain sample uh, from the Turin Shroud, and working with microbiologist Stephen Mattingly of the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio, they determined 
that the coating was indeed uh, a cockle-shaped bacteria and a, a filamentous mold-like organisms are around the thread they have. This coating is transparent to the naked eye. It cannot be removed by normal cleaning techniques that the labs typically do for this kind of test. So they believe that this coating could be enough to skew the radiocarbon dating by some amount. It could be even as much as 1,300 years. They don't know how much older the shroud is. They just believe it is much older, and they haven't got enough evidence to pin that down. So the point is, for those that really are hung up on the shroud, there is the possibility still that that shroud might be 2,000 years old. Don't know. But I want to get off that. Let's assume what we know so far, and that is that the shroud appears to be a valid shroud of a crucifixion that's 700 years ago. What does that mean? Well, there are books floating around. There's a half a dozen of these, and I'm not going to wreck any, any of them for a number of reasons. But I'll mention just one because it gets right to the point for our interest here. A guy by the name of Christopher Knight and Robert Lomas have published several books, and they are third-degree Masons. Now, if you know anything about the Masonic order, that's three out of 33. But that's, that's what they call the Blue Lodge. They're, they're beginners within a few years. But they have published extensive research on the background of the Freemasons. But one of the things that they have come out with is the suggestion that the shroud is actually the shroud of a crusader by the name of Jacques de Molay. He was the last grand master of the Knights Templar. He was crucified, they claim, he was crucified by the Inquisition in a mock a mockery of Jesus' crucifixion before being burned at the stake. And that that shroud was part of that ceremony. Now, if they're right or wrong is not the point. Who, I mean, from our point of view, who cares? It goes, it's part of a larger story that if you did not have a good grounding in the Word of God and you encountered the pseudo-scholarship that surrounds this is just one version of a similar a family of stories that turn out to be about James, strangely enough, the Lord's brother. The story that you, hear, you will find some of the skeptics and secular, I'll put scholars in quotation marks, they portray that the true story of the early Jerusalem church is of Jesus and his brother James as they struggle to establish the kingdom of heaven on the earth using Masonic-style rituals. Now, the establishment of the, what we know as the Christian church, they attribute to a, as a political invention by an intruder that came later by the name of Paul. And that Paul and James were adversaries. And that's the position they try to take and they try to defend. The story continues that these early Christians, the, the, the real Christians, not the Pauline people, but these are, they are said to have buried their most precious scrolls and their treasures beneath Herod's temple before now this is, yeah before uh, they and the city was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD and the hidden teachings of the real gospel by James and, and Jesus were driven underground and following the destruction of the Jerusalem church and the slaughter of the Jewish nation in 70 AD a few of the surviving priests from the smoldering city of Jerusalem headed to Europe to await the moment of the Lord's return prophesied in the Gospel of John. Now, 
precisely 1,000 years later, their bloodline of those original priests, their descendants, re-entered the holy city in Jerusalem to claim their ancient heritage and to form a new order of priests uh, known as uh, the priests of the temple, known as the mysterious Knights Templar. Now, one of the things you'll quickly discover if you start doing research here, there is a lot of mysteries that surround the Knights Templar. They're presented in Britannica and those kind of sources as a group of knights that were organized to protect pilgrims during the Crusades and so forth. That's the press releases. <laughs> there, when you really get behind this, there are, there are a lot of strange mysteries about the Knights Templar, and I won't go through all that here. But the idea was lost to the world for a thousand years. The records that they, uh, it is claimed, that they uh, were clandestinely unearthed and interpreted by the infamous order of the Knights Templar who adopted the ancient teachings and rituals as their own. These warrior monks ostensibly conducted a nine-year-long excavation under the temple following the First Crusade. There is reason to believe that they did discover a great deal. In fact, there are many scholars that believe they found the temple treasures and uh, that uh, hidden below the tumbled ruins. Even, they divide, there's a lot of other things that start here, too. The tarot cards were a, uh, a cryptic. They were assigned cryptic meanings to protect their secret cult. The Knights Templar were a secret order, and that's what partly what got them into a lot of trouble. Now, their strange history, then, endures for about two centuries, about 200 years. When they were finally, they were primarily strong in France. They were incredibly wealthy. That's what leads to the inference that they probably did bring treasure out of their, out of their uh, involvements in Jerusalem. And uh, Philippe IV of France coveted their wealth. They were very, very powerful, but he arranged sealed orders to be opened on a certain day, almost like a Gestapo thing, and on October 13th of the year 1307 in France, all the Knights Templar were arrested and their homes and lands confiscated by the crown. They were tried and tortured for years to find out where the real treasure were. Apparently, the treasure of the Knights Templar was secreted out of Europe or out of France uh, in advance. Even despite all the secrecy by Philip, they, they apparently they never did find the treasure. It remains a mystery. Now, attempts to wipe out the Knights Templar outside of France was less successful. In fact, uh, Philip's own son-in-law was Edward II of England. And he was very half-hearted in his pursuit of the Templars. Scotland was at war with England at that time. And so the order was never even officially dissolved in Scotland. Maintained itself in Scotland for another 400 years. In Germany and Spain, they found refuge in other orders. They changed their name to the Teutonic Knights and some other things. In Portugal, they became the Knights of Christ. They functioned until the 16th century devoting themselves primarily to maritime activity. Most scholars who study this suspect that the, the treasures were secreted by ships somewhere and never found. Vasco da Gama, Columbus's father-in-law, were all tangled up in this stuff. So there's so many trails here, we could spend all night on this issue easily. In 1522, the Templar's Prussian progeny, the Teutonic Knights, repudiated their allegiance to Rome, because up to them, even though they were a secret order, they professed an allegiance to the Vatican. That's finally what undoes them because they are discovered to be Satan worshippers. And that's, what, uh, that's the whole background behind that. But, but anyway, the, in 1522, the Teutonic Knights 
repudiated their allegiance to Rome and threw their support behind another upstart rebel by the name of Martin Luther. So it's interesting to see how these things go. There are scholars that believe that the wealth of the Knights Templars that was never recovered was the starting capital of the great banking houses in Europe. But that's conjectural. But there's a lot of books written on that sort of stuff. Now anyway, in March of 1314, this is seven years after the original arrest of the Knights Templar, their last leader, Jacques de Molay, he was the Grand Master of the Knights Templar, it said he was crucified in a bizarre parody of the crucifixion of Jesus, and it's his image that materialized on the cloth that once clothed him. Now, we brought you up to about the 18th century where various secret societies derived from all of this. Behind all these, it seems that the master society, even prior to the Knights Templar, is an organization that was originally called the, the, the Order of Zion, or the Priory. Of, in, late, in, in 1188, it was changed to the Priory of Zion. And the Knights Templar was a front group really run by the Order of Zion. Also in 1188 is when a derivative spin-off called the Rosicrucians also develops. Now this gets all interwoven with another heresy that uh, I don't think a Bible, someone that has any Bible background has any trouble with because it's so absurd. But there's a heresy that um, Jesus didn't really die and that he uh, married Mary Magdalene and had children and that becomes the Merovingian dynasty and in the 5th century it shows up. That's obviously a heresy, but what is interesting that many scholars overlook is you apparently can build a family tree from Antiochus Epiphanes, the one that desecrated the temple in the second century before Christ, that Titus Vespasian, who destroys the Jerusalem in 70 AD, is a descendant of Antiochus Epiphanes. And that bloodline does connect to the bloodlines in Europe. And so there are scholars that suspect that the, uh, from Daniel 11 and some other studies, that the Antichrist will be of that bloodline. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of James. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.